Welcome to week two of Puck and Pigskin. I'm your host, Shane Marazon, and thank you for joining me. We've got a big uh, week on deck. We've got recaps of last week's uh, NFL playoff games, talking about hockey. Then we've got the upcoming divisional round of the NFL playoffs. And then we've got hockey uh, talk for the last week and looking ahead towards the All-Star break that's coming up. So let's dive right in with a quick discussion of what happened in the playoffs in the NFL last week during Wild Card Weekend. Four out of the six games were blowouts. The two that weren't were Dallas and San Francisco, as well as the Cincinnati-Las Vegas game. Um, both games, Dallas-San uh, Francisco game more so, were only made close later. You know, it looked like one team had complete control and the opposing team got close later in the game. Uh, that was especially true in the Dallas and San Francisco Cisco game. The only reason they got close was by a bad pick by Jimmy G, which honestly is what most people are afraid of. He is not great, and so if he makes a mistake, it uh, it can cost him everything, and they can't have that next week against Green Bay. But we'll get into that later when we talk upcoming games. In the Cincinnati game, I think Joe Burrow once again looked absolutely phenomenal. He's the first quarterback in history over three games stretch to have over 1,200 yards, 10 uh, touchdowns, and no picks. And him and Jamar Chase has just seemed to get better and better and it's come at the best time because T Higgins has appeared to over the last two three weeks uh, get a case of the drops. He was one of four uh, this last week. Uh, the week the game against Kansas City, he also didn't look good. Uh, hopefully, he gets his stuff together because they will need him uh, if they want to beat the Tennessee Titans. Now, the other games. Buffalo absolutely destroyed New England. Their defense looked horrible. <laughs> it looked like it was dying a slow death. And to be honest, everyone's like, oh, it's, it's, the defense played bad. Yeah, but it was like the number one or number two ranked defense all year. So so I don't really think we can say that. I think Buffalo took advantage and they beat them. They went on seven straight drives of touchdowns. Five touchdown throws for Josh Allen and two touchdown runs. Um, it's just, it's insane to think about. They never punted. They never turned the ball over. The only reason they didn't have a perfect every drive was a touchdown was kneel down time at the end of the game. Uh, then you've got the Tampa Bay game. Even though Tom Brady lost two of his offensive linemen, they uh, dominated that game, even though Tom Brady was sacked four times. You've got the Kansas City game. They predictably um, completely laid out Pittsburgh. No one expected them to be there. He also, Patrick Mahomes, has uh, had five throwing touchdowns, so that'll be something we'll get into when we talk about that matchup with the Bills. Just to touch on a little bit more of that Cowboys 49ers game, they went down the field in their first drive and they scored. Dallas's defense kept them in that game. They had three subsequent drives go down the field and looked like they were gearing up to score more touchdowns that only got away with field goals, but the offense was com- held in complete check even after lo- losing Nick Bosa. And so Dallas only had the opportunity to come back when Jimmy G made a late interception that gave them the opportunity to make it to score a touchdown and make it a one-score game. And Dallas went and once again had clock management issues, which has been the story all year for Mike McCarthy. He can't seem to understand how managing a clock works. And anyone, and I mean anyone, who says they should have been able to get a snap off just doesn't understand the rules and 
clearly Dak didn't either. He has to give the ball to the ref. The ref has to spot it, which means the ref has to touch the ball. And honestly, the best blocking their line did all game was blocking the ref from getting the ball. That is no one's fault but theirs. Dak Prescott should not have been trying to snap the ball illegally. He should have been looking for the ref to give it to him. Honestly, if he'd gone down three yards earlier, they would have had plenty of time to get a snap off and they would have been closer to take that shot at the end zone. I get the reasoning because if you have a 20 or even 25 throw as opposed yard throw as opposed to a 40 yard throw, you can actually run an actual play versus having to just run an all go route. And I get that and it makes sense, but Dak didn't make the right decision. The Him and the line did not know what the hell they were doing and so I placed the blame square squarely on him and squarely on Mike McCarthy for okaying a play call like that at that time. If you wanted to, you could have gotten another throw off to get another like 10 yards to the sidelines. You had been doing it all drive. The whole drive, you were getting nice little chunk plays to the outside to get out of bounds. And all of a sudden you try to do an intentional QB draw. It just doesn't, it's not good coaching to me. But enough of the Dallas Cowboys. They have lost the 49ers won. I would like to point out, as I predicted, uh, they helped to me in a couple of my parlays this weekend, this last weekend. And we've got the Rams and the Cardinals. And like I said prior, this could have gone ugly and it did. Um, Kyler Murray was his first playoff game. I expect some jitters. I think the biggest thing is Cliff Kingsbury. I, I think Kyler Murray can mask your bad coach for a decent amount. But honestly, his record, the back half of seasons, not just in Arizona, but going back to Texas uh, in college, it, it's abysmal. I have no logical explanation for why it is but it's like nine straight years his record first half of the year great his record back half of years abysmal and i don't get it and i really think they need to fire him and get a new coach the people I would have wanted him to get, look at, uh, already have signed big deals this year. Um, if you were going to look for another college coach, um, like Lincoln Riley, I was thinking, and things like that. But it's clearly not going to happen now. He signed the big USC job. So your other choices are Eric Bieniemy. Uh, I really think that's the way to go, and I'll explain why. Eric Bieniemy has been a top coaching candidate for the last couple of years. He has chosen not to leave Kansas City, right? Kansas City doesn't win the Super Bowl this year, which I do not believe they will. I think he'll be a little more inclined to leave. He also wants to go to a good place. He doesn't want, he didn't want to go to the Jets. He didn't want to go to Jacksonville. He didn't want to go to these bad teams, the Lions, whatever. Arizona is a good team. They just made the playoffs. They're in the opposite conference, so he's not going to worry about going in conference or even in division. A lot of people have talked about him for the uh, Raiders job, which I don't quite understand. I don't think he would do that to Andy Reid necessarily. It was the same reason I don't think he took the Chargers job last year is because it was in division going to the opposite conference I think that would be a great choice I think he is a smart guy and offensive coaches are really the key here or find another offensive minded guy Who's young who you think can do it? There are plenty of those that have worked out Matt LaFleur most notably uh, Sean McVay um, Who relatively no one really knew that much about at the time go get an offensive coordinator or QB's coach or wide receivers coach that you you think can do the job but do not stick with Lincoln Riley who will get more of the same now apologies for that we're gonna get moving on to this coming
opening week of the playoffs. We've got in the divisional round, we're going to start with the Cincinnati Bengals versus the Tennessee Titans. Uh, this is going to be, to me, one of the better matchups of the weekend. I think it'll be really entertaining. We've got Derrick Henry back. And now here's the question. Does he come back and have fresh legs or does he come back and look a little rusty or is he still a little bit injured and he's playing because it's the playoffs? I really think this extra week because of the bye helped him tremendously to come back uh, healthy. I think they won't really have much of a snap count or a limitation on him, so I do expect them to hammer that ball. You also have, for one of the first times in the entire year, all three of their star offensive players playing. Julio Jones, A.J. Brown, and Derrick Henry. Early in the year, Brown and Henry were playing. And A.J. Brown came, then Julio Jones came in for like one game, and then he got hurt again, and then Derrick Henry went out, and then Julio came back, but then A.J. Brown got hurt, and then Julio got hurt, and it was in and out and in and out. I don't really think they've played any sustained time, the three of them, all season, except for maybe week one when Julio wasn't quite yet working with Tannehill. We had those drops and those miscommunications, if you remember. So I think that's going to be a big thing for them. Their offense looked a little anemic uh, for the first couple weeks after Henry was gone, but they last three or four weeks, they looked like a little bit better, but that was also with A.J. Brown and Julio back. And so I think this is a big thing for them uh, to get this and mesh it, and I think they'll play really well. However, I can't, I can't side with them when, and I know everyone has not been giving them the credit. I have all year. My only thing is how hot Cincinnati is, right? Joe Burrow has thrown for 1,200 yards and 10 inter touchdowns and no interceptions in the last three weeks. That has never been done ever by a quarterback. Him and Jamar Chase are on fire. Him and Uzama have a really good connection at the tight end spot. Uh, Joe Mixon's playing well. The one big issue with Cincinnati, which honestly I think has been the issue with Cincinnati all year long, is the offensive line. They're bad. He was the third most quarterback sacked quarterback of the entire season. Now he's technically one because you're counting playoff sacks, but he was the second or third most sacked quarterback, and he's still, he's playing phenomenally, and that's going to be the issue. Can Tennessee get the pressure with four guys? Because Cincinnati has way too many wide receiver threats to blitz. If you blitz, you're getting Jamar Chase on a quick crossing route that he can take for 67 yards as you saw him do against Kansas City. Uh, twice, I believe. You've got T. Higgins who can burn him. you got Tyler Boyd who's amazing in the slot. you got Uzama. Their offensive weapons are too good to be blitzing against, and if Tennessee struggles to get that pass rush, it could go ugly early. I'm personally picking Cincinnati to win this game. I think it will be very close, though. And one important thing is, Mike Vrabel, off of nine plus days, nine or more days of rest, is 8-0 straight up, and 8-0 gets the spread. So if your betters take that into account. Granted, all streaks must come to an end, as we saw happen with the LA Rams and Sean McVay's record of leading at halftime winning games when they played San Francisco the other week. But I think it's going to be a really good game, and here's the impact for both teams. If you're talking about Cincinnati, what it does is, it. I think last week did this, which was vindicate their choice to go with uh, Jamar Chase. I think this week in the, in the Kansas City game, vindicated their choice to go with Jamar Chase and not Panay Sewell. What it would do this week is elevate Joe Burrow into the clear-cut category of Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes for those people who don't consider him that level. He dragged a team with a poor, and I mean poor, offensive line to the playoffs. He won Cincinnati its first playoff game in 30 years. If they get to the AFC Championship game, he will be in that rank. He beat Kansas City. It's There's so much here that I think it will be hard for people not to say he's in that category with Mahomes and Allen. 
talent. So, and I do believe that is going to happen. And I already believe he's in that category. Um, where I'm still unsure about their coach. I don't think he's proven that he's a good coach in the NFL yet. Uh, I think he's still got a ways to go to do that proving. Now, for what it would mean for Tennessee is it would prove all of the people who have counted them out this year as a week number one or whatever, and no one's giving them the credit they deserve. And honestly, right now, I'm included, but all throughout the year, I have been giving them credit and thought they were very good. They have beaten both Kansas City and Buffalo, right? So I, I can't say they're not good. I just think Cincinnati is so hot at the right time, um, and they're so emotional right now, I, I think they could pull this out, and I do think they will. But it would mean a lot to Tennessee. It would show Tannehill is not... Well, honestly, the reverse would be true. If they lose, and if they lose because Tannehill doesn't play well, it'll show them all they need is the better quarterback, and they might try and go get a veteran quarterback. Uh, but if they win, it'll just prove how good of a coach Mike Vrabel is. I personally think he's a phenomenal coach, and that's me, who is very much in line with offensive coaches generally make better head coaches in today's NFL and he is very clearly a defensive guy so let's move on to San Francisco and Green Bay everyone expects Green Bay to win which is why it will be embarrassing if Green Bay loses which is why I think that's exactly what they're going to do Aaron Rodgers is 0-3 against San Francisco in the playoffs recently is the 2019 NFC Championship game I think that Kyle Shanahan is a better coach than Matt LaFleur I don't disregard the fact that Matt LaFleur is very good. I just think Kyle Shanahan's better. Um, it's going to be freezing, and the more run-dominant team is actually San Francisco. They are built more like a cold-weather team than Green Bay is. It is going to be freezing with a wind chill in the negatives. So that running the ball with Debo Samuel and Elijah Mitchell, that's not something that's going to be affected by the cold. Aaron Rodgers throwing? Might. So they're not going to need to rely on Jimmy G. They're going to rely on the run game and killing the clock. And honestly, that's where the Green Bay defense struggles is in run blocking. They've been pushed around a couple times this year. Earlier in the year when San Francisco was struggling, they held them to the wire. So I believe San Francisco once again this week, like last week, is going to have an upset here. And for Rodgers, that's not good. Rodgers will have only won one Super Bowl, even though he's probably going to get the MVP this season, which I disagree with wholeheartedly. I think Brady deserves it so much more. And I think part of the reason he is going to get it is because of that idiotic voter who said he wouldn't vote for Rodgers because he's a jerk. I think that is stupid of that guy to do because now I think there will be voters who vote for Rodgers simply for the fact that they don't want it to be a political thing if Rodgers doesn't win. I think Brady deserves this more than Rodgers this year, but he's probably going to win it. But he'll only have one Super Bowl. He'll have an abysmal record in the playoffs comparatively. And there's not much you can do about that. They've got a great offense, a great defense. There's no one really here for Aaron Rodgers to blame. Um, San Francisco, honestly, what it would line them up for is an NFC Championship game, which I don't think they win. But what it would also do is increase Jimmy Garoppolo's trade value. Because right now, I'm thinking he's looking like a second round pick trade value, honestly. And not because he's not good, just because he's so injury prone. But if he takes him back to the championship game, especially if he goes to the Super Bowl, they could probably trade him for one of those, a first round pick that they had to trade away to get Trey Lance. They're not keeping him. They're not going to do it. So I think this will be very good for San Francisco, win or lose in the championship game. I do believe they are going to win today. And I think with that win, not today, my apologies, this week. And with that win, I believe they are going to, uh, Aaron Rodgers is going to have some serious thinking to do uh, about himself. Because honestly, you can't blame this on being in Green Bay. There's no argument.
argument that you don't have weapons. Now, moving on to the morning game on Sunday, the LA versus Tampa. Honestly, I expect LA to win. I know Tampa is the favorite, but my expectation because of factors that normally would make a team uh, the underdog, it doesn't because of Tom Brady because he's worth that many points um, with only Mike Evans and Gronk receiving wise with severe injuries to his running back core and to Tristan Wirfs and Logan. It's it's not good and normally you would see this team being the underdog in almost any scenario but because of Tom Brady they're a two and a half point favorite and I think they're going to win and I don't bet against Tom Brady. But what I'm saying is, this is the perfect opportunity for LA. And what's going to happen is, there will be those who talk about Stafford if they don't win. Because a lot of people expect them to win given the circumstances. That will talk that the Rams got here last year with golf. So how is Stafford better? Yes, I think you're running into Tom Brady. It's one thing if you lose. But still, there will be talk about how Stafford is just not that much significantly better than golf that you had to give up two first round picks and golf for him. Now, I'm personally going with Tampa because I don't bet against Tom Brady in the playoffs. It's generally a good idea <laughs> not to. But I would take Tampa in the minus two and a half points. And even I'm overlooking all these injuries because it's always like, yeah, but Tom Brady has a way. Like, the wide receiver thing I know a lot of people point to, but like honestly, he did it for so many years in Green Bay without a real number one wide receiver. Edelman, no offense to Edelman, I think he's very good, is more like a 2B or a slot one. Like he's not, he's not Mike Evans, he's not Chris Godwin, he wasn't Antonio Brown. That was a huge upside for Tom Brady. He dealt with having sub one receivers his entire career in New England outside of the Randy Moss years and maybe Wes Welker, but even Wes Welker is more like a 1B than he is a 1A. And the running game is severely deteriorated. We don't know yet if Fournette will be back. Uh, if he is, that'll be good. But they were able to rush with Vaughn in whatever last week. So sticking with Tampa, if Tampa loses, it does nothing to Brady's, you know, legacy at all. Uh, I don't think he retires this year, uh, no matter the outcome. The only outcome I could see him retiring this year is if he, if he goes back-to-back -back Super Bowls in Tampa. Completely shut down the debate between him and Belichick and go out on top of the world. Moving to the night game, Bills-Kansas City. This is my game this week that can go so many different ways. I personally think the Bills are going to win. They beat them earlier in the year, and I think they can beat them this time. Um... The Bills have just been playing so much better, and their defense is so much better. That's the thing about the Bills that no one realizes. They have the number one scoring defense in the league, and they have the number one turnover differential um, in the league, I believe. Their defense is one of the biggest keys here that no one seems to be talking about, and I think that's why they're going to win. I think they get at least one turnover, and I think that'll be the swing of this game. I also can see this game being a blowout one way or the other. I, I think the Bills are going to win, but I expect expect it to be rather close, but I also could very well see like a 42-28 kind of game. Um, so it's, I think it's going to be extremely interesting. Um, for any of the few people who still don't consider uh, Josh Allen in the same conversation as Patrick Mahomes, we'll have to admit he is if he beats him twice in the same year to go into the AFC Championship game. I personally already consider him that category, as you know from my talk with Burrow joining the two of them. 
I but there are those who don't. There are those who see Josh Allen as a roller coaster a little bit, and at times he can be, but that's the gunslinger way. That is just the gunslinger way. The same thing was true with Mahomes this year. It's the gunslinger way. You have your ups and downs, you have your picks at times. Um, now, <clears throat> the next thing that I think is really important to think about is they met in the AFC Championship game last year. The last time a team has played the team, a rematch of the AFC Championship happened, or a championship game happened in the divisional round, was in 04 with the Colts playing Brady and New England. One year in the AFC Championship, the next in the division round. And honestly, I think that's what we might be looking at, is a the next Tom Brady and Peyton Manning. No, I'm not saying they both will live up to those two players, but that rivalry in the AFC, I think it's the next two big quarterback rivalry in the AFC. And honestly, if Cincinnati can get their shit together from an offensive line and possibly coaching standpoint, not from the quarterback standpoint, point that's good but you still need some help around you um it'll be a three-way thing which never really was in the afc prior you had big ben on and off again uh here and there popping up over the last 15 years to interject in peyton and brady but it really wasn't um and i think we really could have a three-way thing going on here if um if the cincy can work out some of their issues their ownership is not very they don't like to spend money but for Mahomes, if they lose, it's okay. You lose. I don't think people expect you to get to the Super Bowl every single year. It's not the end of the world. And the people saying it is are also ridiculous. Now, I uh, hope you all enjoy the games this weekend. We're going to transition into the NHL right now. But we'll come back to the NFL playoffs for the betting segment at the end of the show. So stick around if that's what you're looking for. We had a great week last week. So, the NHL last week, we mostly talked about what had been going up on until this year. We talked a lot about the awards so far. We've got a little more updates on those. We've got a little more updates on some teams that we didn't get to touch on, the way the seasons have gone versus expectations. Um, and the reason we're doing all this catch-up is because the uh, All-Star break is right around the corner, and so we want to prep going into the All-Star break. And we're also going to talk about some of the recent, very recent things. So, first up, we're going to talk about the Metro. It's a tight race between the four top teams, and as I mentioned last week, I think the eight teams that are going to make the playoffs in the Eastern Conference are set. The four teams from the Metro are going to be Carolina, New York Rangers, Washington Capitals, and Pittsburgh Penguins. Now, Carolina has been hot all year. They're finally starting to make up their games. They were like several games behind, like had several games in hand, and they're starting to make them up, and they are now atop the division. Like I mentioned prior, I think they are going to end up with the President's Trophy. I don't think that's changed one bit. Now, Ovechkin has taken the lead in the points and the goals. He has 27 goals and 56 points. He is now two ahead of Dreisaitl and Huberdeau uh, for the points lead. And if this maintains, I once again state he will win the MVP. Um, not much more to talk about on that end. And just to touch on a couple of the other awards, the Norris Trophy, I think we all can agree, is going to Kel McCarr. And the Vesna is a little more up in the air, so we'll get to that uh, at the end of the hockey discussion if we have time. Now, New York has stayed where they are. Um, I don't think it's like a fall off why they fell out of the number one spot. I just think it's Carolina has been making up games. Um, and so we knew they were going to pass the Rangers. Pittsburgh's been really hot. They've won four in a row and eight out of the last ten since the beginning of January. 
Uh, so they're very, very hot. Washington, on the other hand, has not been nearly as hot uh, in January. They had won two out of three, but then they lost to the Bruins last night. Um, in real close fashion, they're making it a point to lose in like by giving up goals in the last, you know, minute of games, uh, which is something I need, think they need to tighten up. I think they need to tighten up the power play and have Backstrom play on the half wall and not Kuznetsov. I think that's your biggest issue because you have no lateral passing. And without lateral passing, you're screwed. Um, now, to talk a little more about Carolina. While I think Carolina is going to win the President's Trophy because of the fact that they had so many games behind, and they have so many games left against divisional opponents, especially the top four, the other top three teams in the top four, um, it could be rough for them. So, and I'll sh tell you what I'm talking about. Specifically, in March, they have to run a gauntlet that is miserable. They have the most or second most back-to-back -back games left in the year, and the month of March is the worst. But it honestly starts at the end of February with a Pittsburgh-Philadelphia back-to-back, both on the road. Then you hit Columbus and Edmonton before going to March 4, into March. For a Washington-Pittsburgh back-to-back at Washington, then they go home home to play Pittsburgh and Seattle then Colorado then Philadelphia back to back with Pittsburgh Philly at home then Pittsburgh on the road and later that week Toronto on the road Washington at home then the Rangers and the Tampa Bay Lightning then Dallas and then another back to back with Washington and Tampa Bay Lightning both on the road and then end the month with Montreal that is a brutal month an absolutely brutal month I think out of all the games they play pretty much everyone is in the playoffs in that month. They've got Washington, Pittsburgh, Colorado, uh, Pittsburgh, Washington, New York, Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay, Washington. They play Washington three times, Pittsburgh twice, and they play Pittsburgh right at the end of February for a third time. And then Tampa Bay twice. They play the Rangers once, Toronto once, uh, Colorado once. And they play middling teams or um, possible wildcard pushers in Philadelphia and Dallas. I forgot the the fact that they play Seattle. <laughs> That's even worse. But if they can survive that gauntlet, they will undoubtedly have the division in hand and even more so have the, I think, conference and the President's Trophy locked up if they can survive that gauntlet pretty well. Now, we're going to get into the Atlantic division. Florida is overpowering people. They are averaging 4. Point, uh, well, 4.08 goals a game. Only Colorado is averaging more at 4.1. This is insane. They also have a goals against average of like 2-7. However, their style of play could become risky as the year goes along. Generally, these super high, fast-powered offenses lack something in the defense that their offense is covering up for. If their defense, if their offense slumps at all, which generally happens in the playoffs, you have a downtick in average goals during the playoffs. They could be in trouble. They currently lead the league with differential of like 50. Um, they're playing really Really well and I'm not gonna take it away from them the only reason main reason I don't think they're gonna win the, the presidents is because Carolina has several games in hand on them that if they like split them they essentially pass uh, they essentially pass Florida Tampa Bay is also playing phenomenally well we could have 
multiple hundred, we will most definitely have hundred, multiple hundred plus point uh, teams. We could have like 110 plus point teams very easily here uh, this year. The top is better, the middle is better, and then the bottom has shrunk to like five teams in the NHL. That's really it for the central, uh, for the Atlantic. You've also got, you know, Toronto playing really well and Boston playing really well of late. Um, Boston's making up their games that they were shorted and Toronto's just continuing to truck along. I think we all can agree those are going to be the four playoff teams from the Atlantic. Now, we go to Central. Colorado is one of the big teams I wanted to talk about. They started the season abysmally. It was injury, then it was COVID, and it, it looked bad. And honestly, Nathan McKinnon isn't having the year we expected him to. Kale McCarr, on the other hand, has more goals, 16, the than the entire Islanders. Not the entire team. He has five more goals than their highest goal scorer, um, who's at 11. Um, yes, he's playing phenomenally. And not to say McKinnon isn't playing really well. His just goals have dropped. His uh, assists are still really high. I think he's still like third on the team in points. Um, his goals though have dipped and those will probably go up. When a team scores a lot, you're going to get a lot of high, uh, you're going to get a lot of high scoring players. For example, the same thing with Florida as they have Jonathan Hubbardo, Hubbardo uh, in tied in second place in the league in points at 53. Now, the big thing in the Central Division is their seating because I believe the West is a more up-for-grab seating. So, right now, you've got Colorado then at 57 points with 38 games, St. Louis 53 points with 40 games, and Nashville also with 53 points but 42 games. Here's the kicker, though. I think Nashville will fall to at least the number four spot. Minnesota has 49 points, four points behind Nashville, but has six games in hand. Literally if they split, if they go three and three in those six games they have in hand, they will have a total of 55 points and be ahead of Nashville. So I don't see a path where Minnesota isn't ahead of them right now with the way they're both playing. Minnesota is playing very, very well. Nashville has been real hot and cold. Uh, like they had a big run and now they've lost four in a row and then won last night. But prior to that four game losing streak, they'd won like five or six in a row. They're way too hot and cold to stay steady. I think there's a decent chance they make a playoff spot as the wild card um, if they don't fall too far. Winnipeg had started looking better and then they didn't. So to me, that's also very much up in the air. But them and Dallas also have a bunch of games in hand. So it's possible one of them makes a late wild card push. St. Louis is also having a rebound year. However, I don't particularly think that their re that their goaltending uh, duo, that their relief duo of Charlie Lindgren and uh, Ville Husso can hold up the pace they're at. Uh, Charlie Lindgren is 5-0 with a sub 1-3 uh, goals against average. Lindgren is at just over 2, or Husso is just over 2. It's not gonna last, and neither of them I think are clear starters, and I think they they'll make the playoffs. I think they have enough ground to make the playoffs. I just don't think they can do much in the playoffs. Now, moving on to the Pacific. Life
Mike, Colorado, Vegas also started the season beyond slowly. Um, they were at the bottom of their division right there with Seattle for several weeks. However, just like Colorado, we knew they'd rebound. They're too good not to. Um, I think the big issue was what's happened over the last several years is Marc-Andre Fleury covered up a lot of their flaws. And I think that now with him gone, they had to realize and get used to not having his freakish athletic ability able to cover up some of their bad defensive play. And I think they're playing much more well-rounded now than I've seen them in the last couple years. And honestly, it's why I think they're in a better position now to win a cup. I think this is true of Colorado as well because they've struggled and they've had to work through things because they visibly struggled. It wasn't just these underlying issues like you had, um, like they've both teams have had over the last couple years. Now that those goalies are gone and whatever, and they both started slow for different reasons that they had to fix those problems because if they didn't fix them, they weren't going anywhere. So they had to fix those problems or address it. And I think now that they've addressed them, they can move forward and be even better than they were before. Their goaltending might not be better overall, but their team as a whole is significantly better. It's why Vegas, Colorado are still my favorites within the Western Conference outside of Minnesota. I think those and Minnesota, those are my three teams I think are a lock for the playoff right now in the West. Everything else honestly can be thrown up for grabs. I think there are so many different scenarios that can happen, but I think Colorado, Minnesota, and Vegas are the three teams that are a lock at this point for the playoffs. Minnesota, I said all last year was, it was a young year, a young rebuilding year, and they did better than even I expected them to. This is a year where they look ready now, ready to truly compete. No, I am not saying they will win. Honestly, I think Colorado and Vegas have better shots at winning, but I'm saying now they are truly prepared to compete at that level. I will take them seriously. I never thought they were going to win the cup last year. Even when they proved me wrong by beating teams and whatever, I just knew they weren't quite ready that at some point they would kind of fall on their faces a little. And you got to when you're a young team building. And that, and the reason I interjected this here is because that leads me right into my next topic, which is the young guns in the Pacific. The LA Kings and the Anaheim Ducks. They, as we mentioned last week, they have some of the best young talent and even more so in prospects. Last year or the year prior in the World Junior Championship championship game, Canada versus USA, pretty much 50% of that game was either an Anaheim prospect or an LA Kings prospect. And so what I think is going to end up happening is one of these teams will make the playoffs and one of them won't. I think it's most likely the Kings will make the playoffs and Anaheim won't. Um, I'll get into why and who I think will take Anaheim out because I think Anaheim is a little more streaky. Now, what I think the Kings might do because of this abundance of prospects and they don't want to go full young, they might trade a prospect or two at the deadline for some active player right now to seal up some of their uh, some of their team. Now, Anaheim, John Gibson is playing really well and I think we can't overlook that I think way too many people overlook John Gibson but Anaheim is very streaky they they go bit on long runs they had the beautiful Zegras goal they they'll be good they're just they're a step away I think both the Kings and Anaheim are a year away or maybe two for Anaheim seeing what happens but essentially a year away from being in the conversation like Minnesota was last year almost but I think Minnesota was a little further along 
long because they weren't all prospect. They had some more veterans, and so I think they're about a year or two away from being true competitors. But it's a beautiful sign because the West has been the disparity disparity in talent in the West has been significant for the last several years. You've had the top teams, Colorado and Vegas, and you've had Edmonton here and there when they were in the North, and you've had Edmonton pop up. You've had other teams pop up here and there. St. Louis when they won the Cup. You had Winnipeg on and off. You had Montreal, which is in the East. Um, you, you had teams pop up here and there, but there hasn't been... You had San Jose for a couple of years, but they got real old, and you had Dallas. But honestly, since Vegas came into the league, it's been Vegas and Colorado. You had a Calgary somewhat one year, but you haven't had a steady other teams in that conference. You had middling teams, but not true competitors for the Cup. The East has won the Cup a lot more in the last eight, nine years. You know, Tampa, Tampa, St. Louis, uh, I think Boston, Washington. You, you know, it's theirs. It's their top competition is great, but the rest of them aren't as good. So I don't think they run the gauntlet as much as the Eastern teams, Eastern Conference teams, which I think preps them um, better for playoff runs and things of that nature. So it's a very good sign that Anaheim and the Kings and Minnesota now as well, that we're getting younger teams that are building because then they will be able to have real competitors in that conference. And I think that will just make for more competitive playoffs, more competitive Stanley Cups. And that's what you want. You want competitiveness and an enjoyable hockey to watch. Now, the reason I think that Anaheim or LA will fall out of the playoffs is because of a couple things. One, I think it'll be Anaheim. Even though they're in the number two spot right now, they only have two points on the Kings and the Kings have two games in hand. But I think Anaheim is more streaky so they can go on a, you know, a 3-5-2 run or, you know, an 0-3 run kind of thing where I don't see Vegas doing that necessarily, or not Vegas, I don't see the Kings doing that necessarily. The other big reason is because of Calgary. They have 42 points. They are four points, my apologies, five points behind Anaheim and four and three points behind the Kings. They have six games in hand on the Kings and seven games in hand on Anaheim with only 35 games played. They still have one of the league's top five or six uh, point differential at 22. They will play those games and if they split those games, let's say the seven, they go four and three of their seven games that they have in hand on Anaheim. That would mean they get eight points putting them at 53 points ahead of Anaheim. They split the six games they have against the Kings at six points, putting them at 48 ahead of the Kings. I think Calgary is most likely end up in third. The Kings and uh, Calgary is most likely end up in second. Unless the fact that they've been off this long, like Carolina, it, their schedule is going to be much more bunched together in the back half of the season, and that could affect them true, but I don't think it will and I think they'll end up number two. The Kings will end up number three. And maybe Anaheim gets number four and gets a wild card spot. But right now, I don't necessarily think that's going to happen. I think what's going to happen is either Edmonton or San Jose uh, holds on to those spots. Right now, San Jose is a couple uh, points shy of Anaheim uh, with two points games in hand. Um, and then Edmonton also only has 36 games. And I think they'll figure stuff out. Yeah, they got a minus differential and they're essentially a 500 team right now, 18, 16, and 2. But they're too talented not to make some kind of push. 
and they're not significantly enough far back that I don't think they can't make a kind of push, especially against an Anaheim team that could get real streaky when it's worst for them. Now, one other thing I wanted to touch on, well, two other things. Uh, the first is the Vesna Trophy. <sighs> I personally, my vote is Frederick Anderson. Uh, the other option really, I think honestly, is Igor Shesterkin. And the reason I'm telling you I believe it should be Anderson and not Shesterkin is because of the fact that I think they're gonna win the President's Trophy. And generally, when you have a team win the President's Trophy, you can point to one, at least one player who you're saying, they have the credit for this year. It's not Sebastian Ajo. While he's having a good season, he's not playing like a MVP candidate. Like, I don't think anyone has him in their heart trophy conversations none of their defensemen are in the norris trophy conversation and so the fact that of the three major awards defensive player of the year mvp and goaltender of the year only they only have one player in those discussions i think he's gonna get it i think it's very close between him and shesterkin but i think he's played more than shesterkin he's faced a higher volume than shesterkin and if he can keep it up through the gauntlet they're going to play. But honestly, though, he's going to start playing a little less frequently of the games because of how many back-to-backs they're going to play. I don't think he'll play in every back-to-back, -back, uh, meaning both games in every back-to-back. -back. But he has significantly more games played uh, and he has or more game percentage played. He has a better um, save percentage than Shesterkin, um, a better goals against average than Shesterkin. And I just think these are a lot of things that amount and if Carolina wins the president's trophy it's going to be like someone's responsible for this team being this good and honestly I think it's the GM if you really wanted to say something I would say there he's the GM of the year of the freaking decade honestly they were nobodies for almost a decade since they won their cup in 07 or whatever it was they were almost irrelevant and then he comes in and their first year they become the storm or whatever it was they started playing having fun came back got in the playoffs and upset some people uh, made some noise and everyone was looking for them to like make it to the cup the next year and it takes longer than that um, and the next two years they struggled in the playoffs a little bit did well but struggled ultimately and the GM was like okay I know what I need to do I'm gonna take shots where no one else is gonna expect me to take shots but I know what I'm doing and he got rid of Dougie Hamilton and he made other moves getting rid of some veterans and big names or big ish names and rebuilt that entire defense in one offseason he said I know what I need to do to build this defense and that's our biggest issue he went and rebuilt the defense he went and got Frederick Anderson he completely revamped the backcourt of this team and he did it beautifully I think the GM who by the way almost no one knows and I think he did it beautifully and I think he very much uh, is honestly the reason they've done so well but on the team the one you're gonna point at is Frederick Anderson because he's the one in one of the award conversations. Now, if you had Sebastian Ajo in the MVP conversation and one of their defensemen in the Norris conversation, then maybe you would say, oh, you don't give it to him. But if they win the President's Trophy and the, you only have one player on the team in a major award uh, category finalist, they win it. Um, and I just think that's the way of it is because you've got to give someone credit for them being that good. I believe that is all for the NHL discussion for the week. And now we're going to move into the betting segment for the NFL. Last week on my five bets that I told you guys last week, 
I hit on four of them. I had on the same game parlay in the Cincinnati game. I hit on my five-leg parlay for the games, and I hit on my three-leg parlay for the games, and I also hit on the Cincinnati minus five and a half. Um, uh, I missed on one thing, on my uh, Rams-Cardinals parlay. So, we've got another good slate here this week. Um, I think it's a little more up in the air. Last week, I really liked the favorites, honestly, and I went a little conservative even with my parlays not taking the money lines. And the one underdog that I liked won uh, in San Francisco. Now, getting into my bets of the week. I've made several, but my best are we've got a multi-game, four-game parlay of, and I think this is my best four-game parlay of the week, most likely, San Francisco to win. Cincinnati Bengals plus three and a half. Buffalo Bills to win. And Tampa Bay minus three. It's actually minus two and a half now, which is even... Even better for you. The reason I took Tampa Bay's uh, minus three is it gave me a boosted odds of plus 100. Now, I think Cincinnati's probably going to win, but I didn't want to push it, and I think it will definitely be close, so I took the three and a half points here. You could get conservative and, you know, take the points with either San Francisco or the Bills. Uh, if you want to be a little more conservative, I was trying to push the envelope a little bit with this bet uh, by taking both the money lines in the those games um, but either way I do think this is going to be the underdog week I think the one favorite that is going I honestly think the one favorite that's going to win is going to be Tampa Bay um, but if you don't I think they'll all be close enough if they don't win and the one issue there is like Buffalo I think if they win they win uh, and if they don't, they could maybe be blown out. But both the Cincinnati and San Francisco games, I think they'll cover San Francisco plus five and a half or six, depending on your book, and Cincinnati plus three and a half, which is great having that kicker. Now, my same game parlay for this week is a five leg. I generally don't like five legs because they end up screwing me with one of the legs on one digit of one of the legs. But I actually like this one. Evan McPherson's total made field goals of over one and a half. AJ Brown longest reception 23 over 23 and a half yards J- uh, Jamar Chase longest reception over 26 and a half yards and now CJ Uzama's total receptions of over three and a half and the last but not least is Derrick Henry scoring a touchdown I threw the Derrick Henry in to score a touchdown honestly you can leave it out and you probably should leave it out because it doesn't help much with the odds and you generally don't want five leg parlays I believe now I'll get into this Evan McPherson has not made less than two field goals in over two months. AJ Brown and Jamar Chase. Jamar Chase especially, he has he had the most long receptions of the year. That is a total of, I believe, seven or eight during the regular season. Um, it's actually more than that. My bad. Uh, long touchdowns. It was like that. But he had the most in the league of what are considered long receptions, I believe, of 25 or 20 plus yards. Tennessee has given up the third most. So I definitely think he's going to, even if he's held quiet on receptions, definitely think he'll at least get one catch of 27 or more yards. AJ Brown, I don't, I don't necessarily see him like burning them on like a deep shot, but I think he can get like a 15 yard completion that he stretches with his ability 
for that extra seven yards. I don't think it's a huge stretch thinking it's the 23 and a half. And here's the one that a lot of people will be asking me most about most likely is the CJ Uzama four catches. The other option was Joe Mixon four catches. I honestly think both are gonna hit and Mixon has better odds at plus 130. But my thing is, I generally don't like going to wide uh, running backs for receptions because you never know. Unless you're Alvin Kamara, and even if you're Alvin Kamara or Christian McCaffrey, you never know how many receptions there are just because of targets. Like, if you're not getting pressured, if you don't have these designed things, that's why I say Kamara and uh, Christian because they have more designed passes. Um, you could not hit those. Even though Mixon has hit it lately, he's had throughout the season long spells where he gets one or no receptions. Uzama, on the other hand, has been throughout the course of the season getting more and more in tune with Burrow. He had seven catches. He had six catches. He had four catches. He, he's gone over this number I think five out of six weeks, and I definitely think it'll be a good way for them to take advantage because um, the middle of the field is the Tennessee's defense's weakness, and so I think going to Uzama for those third and sevens if they get held to them or on blitzes to take advantage of them, I believe that's where he'll go. He had six targets, six catches last week. Higgins had one catch on four targets, and then in the Kansas City game, he also had a couple of drops, and so I think that is something that will affect him. So I do believe um, Uzama is the better play here. Now, I personally made a couple variations of my four-leg uh, team parlay, but uh, like I said, with the Bengals winning or San Francisco with the points, it's I've made I made variations on it, but that first one I mentioned is my favorite. Now, here are just some of the straight-up bets I like. I like since Cincinnati plus three and San Francisco plus five and a half. Um, I definitely like those numbers. Now, if you were going to ask me about specific prop bets, I do in the Cincinnati game, I definitely do like Jamar Chase's over on yards of like 79. I think he will crack 100 again this week. Um, I like Derrick Henry's over on rushing yards. I believe it's sitting at like a 60 something, which Unless he really isn't healthy, I, I don't see him not cracking that number. It's, sorry, it's 79. I don't see him not cracking 40, 80 if he's healthy. If he's not healthy, I get it. But if he is healthy, I don't see him not cracking that number. So th those are my bets this week. I don't have as many necessarily. I've made variations for myself on some of these bets, um, but I'm gonna wait till Sunday to make a parlay bet on the Sunday night game. So hope everything goes well for you and your betting exploits. Hope you enjoy this week. I think that's all the time we have. You can check us out, me out at Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and on Amazon Music. Thanks for listening to Puck and Pigskin.